Angels, welcome back to our two-parter episode six featuring Lynn Matutu. In the second instalment, we're unpacking the famous feuds that put Taylor Swift on the map as a potentially problematic fave and determining whether our queen is in fact redeemable. If part one saw Lynn and I as Swifties put on trial, then part two sees Miss Taylor Allison Swift before the jury herself. Don't worry if you're unfamiliar with any of these scandals, we got you and we've made it as accessible as possible, so strap yourself in. But before we begin, another set of disclaimers. Since we recorded this in August, our fabulous guest Lynn has started his own weekly podcast called The Shift that I can't rate high enough. And the re-recording of what is arguably Taylor's best album, Red, is now out and holy heck, I have well and truly seen the golden gates of heaven. That was a baptism of epic proportions and I can't help but feel indebted to the Swifty gods. So get amongst it. Also, this episode does not discuss criticisms related to queer baiting and Taylor's You Need to Calm Down circa lover era, because although I have many thoughts as always, I've decided not to publicly comment on queer baiting theories related to artists whose sexuality has never explicitly been confirmed or denied. Anyway, let's have it out. Taylor's whole imagery, and she professes to this as well, it was built around being good and about being a virtuous woman, which is very much grounded again in ideas of whiteness and sort of very outdated notions of womanhood. And so I think I can imagine like, you know, being somebody who at that time just wanted to be good and wanted to represent sort of innocence. It was very easy for her to overlook the experiences of other women who were never looked at as innocent or good, who were fighting different battles all the time and had to clear their name in other ways that, you know, speaking out on a topic that she didn't know about was going to be really daunting and was going to be really divisive and, you know, potentially seen as a very quick way to sort of destroy you know, the very calculated and careful steps that were taken to make her be perceived as a sort of a family-friendly, good woman. And I think the pressure to be good or to be likable, again, is not something that male artists are ever subject to. It's consistently women. And obviously, again, women of colour are subjected to that on an even harsher level. But I think as the type of woman that Taylor Swift was in the media, she was constantly experiencing that pressure. We wanted, we like it's all of her scandals, it have never been alcohol, drug or sex related, which I think is really interesting and have all come from her professing victimhood, which again is an extension of needing to be seen as good all the time and not being seen as the perpetrator of harm. One of her three big feuds that I think sort of captures this um, really well is the Taylor versus Nikki feud that was very brief, but I think really represents a lot of people's um, reservations toward Taylor Swift, or at least POC reservations toward Taylor Swift. Do you remember the Taylor versus Nikki? Were you standing around the time? I wasn't standing back then, but I definitely remember the feud happening because there's a lot of celebrity feuds in the 2013s and 14s. The girls were vibing. The girls were fighting. Like, Zelie was absolutely correct. What is going on? Um, but I remember she pissed off the barbs. And that's one thing you definitely don't do. You don't piss off the barbs because they will, come, they will literally destroy your life. I think yeah. Nikki didn't get nominated for an award or something. And Taylor mm. did. And Nikki was, like, calling her out on it. And then Taylor was equally calling her out on it as well. Yeah. And then they reunited at the VMAs. They did a performance together or something. And yeah. the barbs were very happy. But I think about this, just going about, back to your previous point about Taylor wanting to be good. I honestly now just think about it. The fact that she probably was surrounded by, um, obviously, her previous record label and all of these males yeah. and this image that they were pushing off her. I'm not trying to say that they were trying to push her down into a specific image yeah. or try to create a pop artist with a very specific image. But imagine 
you were put in the same shoes and you're just stuck with these people telling you, no, 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 you need to be the good girl. You need to be the good girl. You can't have any opinions. You just have to be this sweet little angel pop star that does all these sweet little angel things. You're going to be terrified of speaking about anything because that's sort of the mentality that's been engraved in your brain. And obviously that's not to excuse the fact that she didn't do it. But now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, wait, hold on. Hold on. Now, wait a minute. Hold on. Mm -hmm. She would have had a lot of male stakeholders telling her what to do. And men don't take well to women stepping outside of the boxes that they've been put in. But sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. That's that's such a good point. And it's 100% very, very accurate. So I think when Nikki and Taylor had their cute little feud, I'm glad that it didn't sprawl into something that it didn't need to be. And it didn't extend over eons and eons and decades, like the Kimye and Taylor situation, which... Girl, even I was tired. Every time I'd see Kim Kardashian tweet a snake, I'd be like, ain't you tired? Like, Literally. You have about 16 children now and your husband is very, very unwell. So you need to look after that. (laughs) And I love Kim. I think Kim is so funny. I Just observing her, I think her entire career, Mm -hmm. not funny like her. I just think she's a comedic person. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was tired. Like, please give it a bone. So I'm happy that it was all done very quickly and I don't know how they ended up squashing it. Maybe they just spoke to each other, but I don't know. It was interesting that it didn't spread out and turn into something it didn't need to be. Yeah, I think that particular controversy or feud was a really teachable moment for everyone. And just for our listeners, because I know we have some listeners who love pop culture but are not as in the know or as obsessed as we are, who probably don't know the finer details. Um, I've got a little summary of what went down. So in 2015, Taylor Swift was one of five nominees for the MTV Video Music Award for Best Video. And that was the same year that Anaconda came out, which as we all know, was a huge cultural moment, but it was snubbed. It didn't receive a nomination. Bad Blood by Taylor Swift did receive a nomination. And the only other female nominee out of the five was Beyonce for her music video for 7-Eleven. So Nikki then tweeted about the mass impact that the video had um, on social media. And she tweeted statements such as, if I was a different kind of artist, Anaconda would be nominated for best choreo and video of the year as well. When the quote unquote other girls drop a video that breaks records and impacts culture, they get a nomination. She then said, if your video celebrates women with very slim bodies, you will be nominated for video of the year. All, quite frankly, facts. And some might confuse it with her being a a sore loser. But given the sort of huge impact that Anaconda did, I do think that those statements were fair. But what actually caused the feud was that Taylor then tweeted in response, at Nicki Minaj, I've done nothing but love and support you. It's unlike you to pit women against each other. Maybe one of the men took your slot which was, again, sort of expressing that sort of very surface-level feminist rhetoric. And so Nikki replied, Huh? You must not be reading my tweets. Didn't say a word about you. I love you just as much, but you should speak on this at Taylor Swift. Interestingly enough, Katy Perry chimed in with a subtweet saying, Finding it ironic to parade the pit women against other women argument about as one unmeasurably capitalises on the takedown of another woman, which was a subtweet because everybody knows Bad Blood was theorised to be about the feud between Katy Perry and Taylor Swift. Taylor then sort of replied, so messy, so tired, so unneeded. Again, I really don't like female v female feuds. I just think let's concentrate our energies elsewhere. Taylor later replied, Nicki Minaj, if I win, please come up with me. You're invited on any stage I'm ever on. And she said, I thought I was being called out. I missed the point. I misunderstood, then misspoke. 
I'm sorry, Nikki. Nikki thanked her, and then the feud was officially concluded when Minaj and Swift sang a surprise live mashup of The Night Is Still Young and Bad Blood at the MTV Video Music Awards. So, whoa. It, it, like you said, it was wrapped up nicely, thank goodness, but I think it was a teachable moment. I think... It really embodies a lot of people's problems with her, which is that um, one of Taylor's main defense has been her white tears. And again, relying on the victim narrative and inserting herself in a narrative that wasn't about her because Nikki never tweeted at Taylor. It wasn't a clear subtweet. Yes, she was referencing and maybe criticizing Taylor's privilege, but you can do that without attacking the person. And that's what Nikki was doing. And she wasn't lying. Nikki was stating facts and the Nikki discourse. I feel like I need to come back for the Nicki Minaj episode. But also she's always consistently been persecuted by the music industry when it comes to award shows, because we know she was blacklisted from the Grammys. We know that the VMAs and all the other award shows hate her. So she would definitely and definitely was in her right to be criticizing that. But the fact that Taylor jumped in and was like, wait, hold on, this got nothing to do with me. I ain't got nothing to do yeah. with this. And Nikki was like, I never called for you. Like, why do you jump yeah. in? This is not your story. Obviously, you are perpetuating the thing that I'm criticizing, but mm-hmm. I never called for you. So why are you jumping in? Literally. It's very <laughs> that. And it's a very typical. It goes back to the exact same thing about these crocodile tears and these white women inserting themselves in situations mm-hmm. in which they have no place. But very much so, the fact that it was quashed is very, very good. But girl, that tied me out. Revisiting that, I'm tired. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm tired. I'm wanting to do damage control. I'm wanting to pull them aside. I'm wanting to hug Nikki because it speaks to sort of a longstanding history of the angry black women trope and of tone policing black women. Nikki was speaking her truth. She had every right to have an emotional response to the situation. And even then, um, she wasn't calling out Taylor. And I think it just goes back to a really dangerous history where white women say, you know, you can speak to me about your pain, but the minute it becomes personal or too emotional or more than I can handle, I'm disinterested and I'm being attacked. And we have seen, particularly last year, how dangerous it can be when white women decide to use their white tears and decide to play Karen. It can have such dangerous consequences because as much as the patriarchy hates women, they love to protect their white women. Everybody will stop in their tracks to protect the white women. It's the pinnacle of cuisine. White women are the pinnacle of cuisine on the (laughs) dinner table of the world. (laughs) Like, they are the Mm -hmm. lobster bisque. It's very that. And it genuinely does upset me because there are so many instances of this happening, even aside from Taylor, where um, white women and white males are excused for the same, like, nonsense, for the same horse shit. And it's tiring because it always does fall back on the black counterpart as, like you said, being the angry black person or so and so and so and so. And especially when it comes to the entertainment industry, I feel like there is so much politics entrenched within all of that. Um, And like with younger fans, for instance, I know younger Swifties would have been on Nikki's case because those little rabbits, they have accounts, they have multiple accounts and they will tweet at you nonstop slandering your name Mm -hmm. and saying all sorts of things because twitter you can really do whatever the hell you want like there is no filter it's lawless it's It's a it's no man's land you can do whatever you want you can be whoever you want but there would have been on poor nikki's case coming for her bag and she's just trying to say i and and this is another thing as well just going on a slight tangent but anaconda truly was a very influential video because yeah. now every girl, it's the twerkulator, it's the twerk city, yeah. it's this and this and this. And I'm not saying that Nikki invented twerking, obviously not. But 
she made it into a pop culture little moment and mm-hmm. everyone was just sort of like no we don't really want this we don't really care for this we don't mm. we don't we're not going to receive this but now every boy man girl sister every person is consuming it whole and mm. it's upsetting it it really is it's upsetting and yeah which is really interesting because, you know, the mainstream story that should have come out of that feud was, in fact, what Nikki was speaking about. It was the way that black bodies are over-policed and subject to ridiculous standards that their white counterparts aren't. But instead, it became about the feud because Taylor did insert herself. She dropped her nose in Nikki's business and she spoke when she didn't need to. And I'm glad she learned from it. But it just, it just speaks to um, no matter how good intentioned you are, the consequences of not utilizing your white privilege in the best way. You know, even though, yes, she learned from it and they bonded and I'm really g- glad she did. Despite best intentions, it still remains at the end of the day that that story became about the feud and not about what Nikki was saying, because whiteness um, is an ever-present distraction from what needs to be done. don't want to talk too long about all the feuds because I want us to sort of speak about the different degrees of problematic and what is or isn't sort of permissible but as tired as it made us I feel like we absolutely have to speak about the Taylor v Kimye situation because I think one it was just so incredibly messy and tiring and it was her longest sort of biggest storyline but it also really again spoke to that I'm a helpless victim narrative and I think it was when she started to stumble a little bit and the media didn't quite buy into it I will give a little recap but dish your thoughts now this I can watch and I can entertain because ain't no black bodies are getting involved and nobody's getting harmed that doesn't need to be harmed but I was very present for this feud I remember when that keeping up with the Kardashians episode aired where Kim played the footage she played that footage which stopped the world i was on my way to work while i was watching the episode and i froze i was like (laughs) everything's happening when you're at work all the album drops i'm a hard worker i'm contributing to the economy and i deserve to be rewarded for it um but it dropped and i was just like oh my god what the hell is this because taylor had gone for so long being like oh she never consulted with kanye kanye never consulted with her regarding the song and she felt like you know she was taken advantage of and everything like that. So obviously when someone's making that accusation, you're going to take their side. But then the footage came out and I was like, is she just a white, is Taylor Swift just a white woman? <laughs> Literally was like, is she just textbook definition, a Karen? I was gagged. I was gagged. But then obviously there was more information that came out of it, which sort of, Proved that there was more to the story than what was revealed, but that entire feud went on for so long. Far too long. It got really, really murky, and I don't think the information that came out sort of somewhat in defense of Taylor didn't come out until many months after that music video. So there was a huge period of time where we were just thinking, yes, Taylor is just a Karen. 100%. Which is a really scary thing to be sitting in when you are a diverse fan who has spent years defending her only to be proved wrong, I guess. Yeah, she's not this woman that we think she is. When all the comments on her Instagram were just snake emojis, I did not know what to do with that point. I said, you know what, Taylor? I have been going to war for a very long time at your behest, okay? I'm taking off my badge and I'm putting it down. Good luck to you and I'll see you in a couple of months. (laughs) 
<laughs> I said, I wish you all the best, but my trench foot has gotten out of hand. I can no longer be on the front lines. <laughs> I couldn't do truly. it. I truly couldn't do it. And also that entire feud, like you said, was very murky because it was very much like, how are you going to come out of this without coming off like a Karen of being like, okay, now this is about me and the truth has sort of come out. I'm just going to cry my way out of it. And I honestly don't remember how it was resolved, but I, no one saw Taylor for a very long time. Yeah, I think like a year or something. Like no one saw her at all, period, in public. I remember seeing photos on Twitter of her getting carried in um, like various containers um, out wow. of studios into her taxis and to her cars by her security guards so that she would not be seen. And I think that's dedication. That is dedication. Jesus Christ. For listeners who aren't aware of the context, the Kimye feud goes back to 2009, I believe. Or at least at first it was just a Kanye B. Taylor and then it became Kimye. As many of us know, in 2009, the MTV VMAs, uh, Swift, who was like, 19 i think at the time she was giving an acceptance speech for winning the best female video award um all these video awards causing all this controversy anyway she won it um she won it over beyonce single ladies which was again another iconic moment by a black woman but just you know for i was i was ready to get angry about that but then i realized that um single ladies that same award show same year won best video period so i think that was okay to throw taylor a bone but swift was giving her acceptance speech and was interrupted on stage by a drunk kanye west who said Taylor, I'm really happy for you. I'm gonna let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. And then uh, later that night, when Beyonce did win her award, she brought Taylor back on stage to have her moment. So that's when it first began. Everybody, like, no one was on Kanye's side. To me, that symbolizes one of the many things about Kanye West that I detest. I'm not a Kanye West fan. But that was the beginning of their feud. And then many years later in 2015, it seemed that uh, Swift and West had buried the hatchet, which to me, I was like, okay, Taylor, I love you, but that is your first mistake. You don't make up with a man like that who says things like that. Like, I don't know, I personally couldn't. I would feel like I was abandoning myself um, and, and saying that what he did was okay. But anyway, that was her business. They buried the hatchet. It was weird. It was public. It was out of the blue, it was whatever, felt very strategic, which honestly this whole feud did. But this this particular phase of their feud um, was fueled because Kanye released a, a song called Famous that says, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. Why I made that bitch famous. <laughs> Look, I'm not going to lie. Kanye makes music that slaps. I'm not going to lie. He does, and I hate him for it. I hate him for it because I love his music. 10 things I hate about hate you, him. you make great music. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> literally and so that lyric was obviously so misogynistic and gross and honestly to me the real fool in the situation was kim for letting her mans say on the public say on the record i feel like i might still have sex with this other woman while he was wearing the ring i mean kim you were the real fool for letting your man say that because that couldn't be me but that song came out was subject to a lot of scrutiny and in between that there was debate and then afterwards he like doubled down on it by releasing the music video which had a nude figure of swift in bed a video that taylor swift later described as a revenge porn music video which strips my body naked but the whole feud was that taylor did not permit this she did not approve it but then i'm gonna let you say what 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 did this video originally released by kim on snapchat what did it uh reveal it, it was on Snapchat, not on there. Oh my God, it was on Snapchat. This is all coming back to me now. Okay, yeah. So essentially, Kim then showed this footage of 
Kanye and Taylor on a phone call. Kanye essentially regaling to Taylor the context of, I think, the song as well as the music video. No, not the music video. I think just the song with the line, which Taylor had been crying about for quite some time, being like, I never permissed this. This is a complete violation of my likeness and my name. So then Kim was like, oh, so you think you're clever, huh? And she released Mm -hmm. this little footage of Taylor and and Kanye on the phone. And the internet was like broken, shattered to pieces. Mm -hmm. And everyone was freaking out because... And I'm going to go back after this and watch that that Snapchat series. (laughs) Because it was definitely a moment that is most pleasing to me in my career as a pop culture historian. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, and then everything just sort of collapsed it descended into chaos after that the video is heavy on verbal confirmation like they even address what would happen if it started a controversy if the media was mad about it and she was like oh yeah like we can be like oh it's cool because jokes on you i was in on it to me that was a weird response to have anyway and that's why i sort of think that all of this feels like um actually we were the fools and that Kimye and Taylor got won over us is what part of me wants to think, except for the fact that it actually did have huge consequences on Taylor. So I don't know why it would be worth it. Her rebuttal was then that she never was played the song before um, it came out and that she wasn't aware of the lyric, I made that bitch famous, which is a horrible line, but I would have been equally, if not more pissed off with him thinking that we might still have sex and feeling like that was owed to him was disgusting to me. But that was messy and, you know, that is what really birthed the reputation era. Can you take me through your thoughts um, on the reputation era, which was very much sort of a revenge story, her stepping into the snake persona that Kim had given her? The gag is Kim and I have this video. I love this video of Kim being mm-hmm. interviewed. It's on my Instagram by someone. She was is somewhere in 2009 on some sort of red carpet. And she was like, someone asked her about Taylor Swift. And she's like, I love Taylor Swift. Love Story is my number one most streamed song. I just followed you on Twitter. I'm watching you, Taylor. And the transformation a couple of years later into this mm. whole... I can't stand this woman is so funny to me. But reputation, Taylor disappeared from the face of the earth for like a year and then some. No one heard from her. She was on no social media. There was no paparazzi photos of her, which is very interesting to me because I'm like someone of such high profile. It makes me question how controlled is this image of any celebrity that we're seeing because... I'm sure if Taylor Swift was, even if she was in the country somewhere, the media would still be able to find her. So, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's another question for another time. But she then came back on Instagram by releasing a GIF or three or a series of GIFs into a snake. And everyone was like, what's going on? Because she deleted her entire Instagram. Everything was blank. And I was shitting my pants at that point. I was like, "What? what's going on? Like, what is she doing? What is she up to? Then she released Look What She Made Me Do, which was a very iconic music video. I would give her that. That woman knows how to make a music video. There was a lot of Easter eggs still to this day that people are deciphering. And the internet was talking about it for yonks. She reclaimed the villain role which she was given, which I thought was interesting. I thought it was an interesting move to make. She said, do you want me to be the villain? I'll be the villain. And she had this entire reputation album about the fact that, you know, she was defamed and she's going to own that and she's just going to run with it. And I guess it was her way of trying to say that I control my own narrative. But I don't know. It was was interesting because I guess it was very iconic, but also how would 
it have landed if she had just completely ignored it and then just did a completely different album mm. addressing completely different themes without even addressing yeah. the controversy. Yeah, she gave a lot of airtime to the scandal by giving in to that. The scandal was maybe like constructed so wholly because mm. she sold a lot of copies. <laughs> she did. She did, which was a risk, you know, she really because it could have really gone the other way. I mean, for a second, she did stand to lose something through that scandal and I'm sure she did from many people because it was the first time that I sort of went you know what, you've actually been proved wrong and I sort of can't defend you here. I sort of also didn't care that much, but it was also just like, you've actually, like, you sort of, you've been proved wrong. You've been caught out. The receipts are there, so I can't defend you. But what really sort of did it for me at that time was that even though she is this sort of uncool, cool girl, she was always really unapologetic about it and she spoke for the people that were unapologetic about it. But this was the first time that she sort of let the quote-unquote bullies win. And it was an album I didn't hate. There were songs I liked, but it was definitely a moment in time where I said, okay, I'm an old Taylor stan. I don't know where I sit with this new Taylor. Coming more so into my stanhood around that reputation time. So mm-hmm. I was very much on a different leg that I was like, oh, this is super cool. You know, she's making an entire album out of this controversy. But then now that you mention it, it was definitely very strange. If she had done a couple of songs, like a single and then another single, left it at that. But mm-hmm. like 17, 18 tracks, all sort of with the same themes. Mm. all sort of egging onto the same controversy. And maybe it was a bigger societal context and a comment on the fact that she has been crucified about various mm. things for so long, but it was riding mm. on the coattail of this one controversy. So mm. that was definitely very strange. Mm. And I can take from that just being like, this doesn't seem authentic. It, it seems very yeah. contrived and built mm-hmm. in a laboratory, girl. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to be in a laboratory. No, Mm-mm. no, I'm, I don't, yeah, I don't want to drink the Kool-Aid. Which I think made the surprise release last year of, and I'm, I'm not trying to skip over Lover because that was a whole different thing and it was somewhat more of a return to old Taylor, still somewhat grounded in reputation era. But I think that's what made the surprise drop of Folklore and Evermore so monumental to Swifties and to pop culture last year because that was Taylor having having taken some time off returning to her roots, who she is as somebody who is unapologetically able to do what nobody else can to tell the stories that only she can. Um, She returned to being an immaculate storyteller and lyricist and I think is just her at her absolute peak. Exactly right. When Folklore came out, it was... And I'm more than happy to skip Lover because to me, I felt like Lover was definitely a filler album, but that's that's a narrative on its own. But Folklore was very, very masterful and watching the long pond sessions on disney plus where she was talking about the fact that she forgot she could write stories that weren't surrounded Mm. on her own narrative and that she Mm. at the end of the day is a writer and i think the thing with music is or the music industry 
because it's now so intertwined with celebrity, you consistently mm. feel the duty or that you owe people the service of regaling your deepest, most darkest, harrowing secrets. And that's mm. what's going to make you successful. But I feel like with somebody like Taylor, and any artist can do this. Heck, if the music is good and it's hitting, who cares who it's about? Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she's definitely taken and... and and re-harness that narrative that I don't need to be writing about everything that I have done in a day for it to be a song and my song. She has made, and for those who haven't listened to Folklore, definitely give it a listen. Even if you're not a Swifty, mm-hmm. if you just want a cool album to just calm down to yeah. and just relax and unwind. It's not a radio album. It's just something to listen to through and through. But She's telling a story that's not her own and she's creating a universe. It's like a book. She's creating a universe in her head Mm. and she's telling it in a way that is so sonically and melodically pleasing. Yeah. Why the hell would you not like it? Like, hello. Yeah. (laughs) Get into it. (laughs) Get into it. Like, open your mind and drop the ball and just get into it. I think one of the reasons why it's so good is that she finally, at least it seems, blocked out all of the noise, you know, she wasn't distracted by the sort of celebrity persona, by the media, and she just got back to business. And I think, you know, when you're talking about her saying that she forgot she could write other people's stories, you know, that also speaks to a tradition where women are seen as only being capable of telling their own stories, whereas, you know, men get to tell these universal stories that speak for everyone. It's the same reason that, you know, when you look at um, literary fiction, you have just fiction, which is universal, and then you have a separate category for women's fiction because the great universal stories have to be told by men. Women can only tell a very specific feminized version of their experiences, which I think is such a limited notion. And so her being able to skillfully create the TCU, the Taylor Cinematic Universe, that was so enticing and mesmerizing and interesting and interconnected while grounding it in her personal experience was just like a boss move. It just makes her legacy so significant for the rest of time. But I I want to sort of talk about, you know, the fact that she was able to redeem herself through that album. She was able to sort of move past her reputation era and sort of almost wrap up the conversation in talking about, you know, cancel culture more broadly. She sort of attests that with her reputation era, she was cancelled after the Kimye scandal. I personally don't believe in cancel culture because I've, I'm yet to see anybody who has successfully been cancelled. Bill Cosby got out of jail. James Charles consistently, you know, bounces back from every single scandal. I don't believe in sort of crucifying everybody for every single mistake, but I do believe in accountability. And people tend to feel resentment because they were held accountable. And I don't think that's something to ever apologize for. Yeah, I definitely... Like you were saying, I believe more in accountability than cancelling people because I just don't think it works. And it is definitely a social media um, being bored type situation. And people just sort of create these controversies just for the sake of creating them. I think if you're a shit person and you have this aura about you that um, doesn't care to be receptive and you don't want to learn and you don't want to be held accountable, definitely stop booking the jobs or people stop booking that person for the job stop buying the albums stop doing anything don't fund and support that person they can then and then be cancelled um but 
Like, for instance, it's really quite interesting when you look at it from an outward perspective because it just goes back to the same thing of who have I been sort of trained to not like because of A, B, and C? Mm. And who do I just think is exempt because of A, B, and C? Mm. And I feel like if some, like, if Billie Eilish were to be cancelled on a mass level, for the most recent comments that she's made, which are of extreme racist nature, then it would definitely carry on and spin out into a big bowl and she wouldn't become and she wouldn't be the person that she is today. But because, I don't know, with somebody like Taylor, she's been around for so long and people have just always been very disconnected from her that it's, I don't know, so much easier. But I don't think cancelling works, to be honest. Like you said, James Charles, Jeffrey Starr... Um, all these other Z-list celebrities, girl, nobody knows who they are. You can count them all you want. I never knew who they were yeah. to begin with. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think when it comes down to it, you know, the reason why I would call her my problematic fave, the way the reason that she still qualifies as being a fave is because for me, I think it's important to distinguish between a bad choice versus a bad person. I'm going to again use Kanye as an example. I know that I have friends and mutuals who listen to Kanye West, so I'm not hating you or judging you I just am judging him fully you know to say something like slavery was a choice a comment that you know is an indictment on all of our ancestors and to then side with the master of white supremacy Mr Donald Trump those are things that have tangible effects on the lives of your listeners those are things that have sort of instigated extreme violence whether directly or indirectly to me they are indicative of a set of morals that I don't agree with a set of morals that I have deemed antithetical to my beliefs and I think when it comes down to morals it's more clear when you side with this sort of person to me it represents morals that espouse bad character traits versus sort of somebody who has otherwise shown a commitment to growth and who has shown empathy and who's shown kindness to other people making a mistake grounded in ignorance that they have then later tried to repair or have been accountable for to me that's a different thing you know as much as I hate it somebody who said the n-word when they were 14 years old who has since come out and apologized and has since made reparations and sort of put forth things in motions that you know the offended community have deemed genuine I am far more likely to want to sort of forgive them when patterns have emerged then that is indicative of character not of a bad choice which all of us have made in our lives and so for me you know she has in this last sort of most recent era come forth and said I have made a mistake by not speaking out I have so much to learn I have communities whose voices I need to amplify and whose voices I want to amplify and I've seen somebody who has been misguided who has been centered on their own victimization so much so that they haven't looked at the different multifaceted experiences of marginalization that surround them. And I've seen a willingness to want to change and I've seen a good heart subject to sort of bad experiences or bad moments versus somebody who has consistently been an enemy to say. And so I think it's for that reason that I do believe that she is redeemable. I do believe that she's worth celebrating. I do believe that she is a fave that I can stand happily and proudly while also maintaining the right to criticize them. Because like we discussed before, when you invest so much time in them and so much money in them, you do maintain the right to criticize them because criticism can be loving and it can be constructive. And the people most qualified to give you criticism are the ones who actually want you to win. So I think for that reason, it's that she is a redeemable person and somebody who, as complicated and as messy as it is, I'm going to be a Swifty. Per. And also, her music <laughs> slaps. 
Um, yes, but yeah, hundred exactly. percent. It's just like if you're gonna hold the same sort of criticism, then you need to have the same reflective criticism on the people that you entertain and the people that you donate okay. your money to to be entertaining you. Otherwise, you're just gonna be blindly following the same societal constructs that you deem to reject when really you're not really thinking of anything other than what you're being told so yeah her music slaps i'm a swifty you're a swifty ride or die through and through i know taylor's gonna listen to this i know she absolutely will listen to us and please invite us to a meet and greet when the borders open please because <laughs> we are on the front lines for you front lines we've been doing this front line discourse for a long 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 time didn't get to unpack it just because of time constraints but I one of the other bigger feuds that I think is actually quite legitimate is the Taylor v Scooter Braun feud which is why for listeners who aren't necessarily Taylor Swift fans it's why you may have been seeing promo for re-released versions of her old albums called Taylor's versions and that is because she was subject to the masters of her albums being sold to somebody who has consistently been anti-Taylor and that's a whole other story that people can look at. I thought it was worth sharing you know just as sort of additional insight to whatever research other people might want to do after this episode or, or what they might already know but I didn't actually understand what it meant for somebody else to own your masters. What that means, this is word for word from Constance Grady, who wrote this in a Vox article. What it means when somebody else owns your masters, she said, in Swift's case, that means the master recording of a song like You Belong With Me is the actual record she made in the studio in 2009 and all the copies of the song that exist in the world on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, on CDs are copies of that record. What's more important is that owning the rights to a master recording means owning the right to make, sell or distribute copies. Anyone who wants to make a copy of the recording must ask for permission from the owner of the master rights. And now those rights belong to Scooter Braun, which means that if someone wants to license You Belong With Me so they can put it on a TV show or on a movie or on an ad, they need to get Braun's permission and they need to pay him a fee. I didn't understand that that's what that meant. So that is the sort of power that Scooter Braun has. So I would encourage all listeners, if you are Swifties, to get amongst the Taylor's versions as they come out because, you know, aside from the messiness that we have described, this is a pretty blatant case of men powering up against a powerful woman to take credit for her work. Work that is entirely hers. She writes all of her own songs and she had been begging for years to buy her masters back and they would not let her unless she stayed with that record label. So we want to get behind that. But to conclude, because I've just had the funnest time talking to you and I could literally go on forever and ever, and I'm sad that we can't, I think we have, or at least I hope we have painted a pretty clear picture of the nuances of what it's like to be a Swifty. We didn't even sort of get into sort of her relationship to the queer community and whatnot. I think that's an interesting discourse we can jump into another time. I want to ask you two things. One, I want to ask you, this is going to be a really tricky thing. I want to ask you your top three Taylor Swift songs, period entire discography and then I want you to end it with a would you rather question that you can pass on to our next guest um child no why'd you put me on the spot like this okay (laughs) um okay well my top three Taylor songs oh okay I wasn't expecting that question I love Treacherous I think it's such Mm -hmm. a good song August, classic, Take Me to Church. And, oh my God, this is so hard. New Romantics, because it's such a fun pop song. Oh, 
exquisite choices and also so different. I have one when I'm sad, I have one when I'm overjoyed, yeah. and I have one when I want to be just sort of in the middle. Obsessed with that answer. So good. Could you hit us a little would you rather? Yeah, I'm very much inspired by Lord currently. So this is definitely, and I've been watching a lot of her interviews. My would you rather question is, would you rather live in a place that is always nighttime? Um, or would you rather live in a place that is always daytime? That's a really good question. This girl was in Antarctica and it was always dark, she was saying. And then she went somewhere else where it was always daylight. And I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I, need, I need a balance. So that's the, would you, that's the would you rather question. Oh my goodness, that is terrifying. Um, and I will leave that in the capable hands of our next guest to answer. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for coming on. I've, Like I said, I've wanted you on for ages and I'm so happy that you're now part of the Tender Age community because that just means I'm going to have to have you back on sometime very soon. Thank you so much for having me. This was incredible. This was the very intense, divine, intelligent discourse that the world needed to listen to. Oh, thank you so much. I completely agree. You've been listening to Tender Rage with Sunny Adcock, featuring guest Lynn Matutu, as we conclude our two-part Taylor Swift extravaganza, where we discuss the trials and tribulations that come with life as a Swifty, and the famous feuds that have kept us in our seats along the way. Follow him at lynn.etc or at theshiftpodcast underscore on Instagram. And for more Tender Rage content, follow us on at tenderragepodcast on Instagram. Tender Rage is an original production written and directed by yours truly, Sunny Adcock. Co-produced and edited by Evelyn DuBose, who also did the music you're listening to right now. Thank you so much for tuning into the space. Get keen for more exciting episodes coming your way. Till next time.